I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Sean Pratt. And I do things like get in a taxi and say, the library, and step on it to the Great Concavity. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome, Sean. Love that. Um, Welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for swinging by, uh, you know, here at our library. Yeah. And uh, people probably have already recognized your voice if they are, you know, Infinite Jest fans because you are pretty well known now. We were just talking about for being the voice of the audiobook for Infinite Jest. 56 hours. (laughs) <laughs> 56 hours of reading out loud oh that takes a lot of space on your computer as well oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's not that's true truth be told it's not the longest book i've ever done um what really the, what what's been longer well, let's see the longest project i've ever done was a five volume history of the state of california that was 150 <laughs> hours <laughs> what? oh wow and then the longest single book i've ever done was a two volume biography of abraham lincoln that clocked in at about 110 hours so once you do 110 hours that was and that was before infinite jest so for me so you got yeah it was like falling off a lot you're like oh yeah it's child's play yeah right no problem no problem at all (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome so this is uh this is episode 18 of the great concavity and we're super psyched to have you on chat Sean, just Shad. Shad. uh been listening to much uh, cbc3 i think speaking of canada um (laughs) But we uh, we're, we're excited to talk to you about your experience with this book in terms of you know what it was like recording it, some of the choices that went into that, and then sort of your experience after the fact. Um, so maybe walk us through a little bit of uh, what it's been like, some sort of coming to the project, and and what the fallout of that has been. Yeah, sure. So how did you want me to start? I mean, well, did, what it, fire away? I'm here for Just you guys. Start with um, you know, <laughs> did you audition to get this part, and you know how long did it take you from the time you auditioned to you record it. We assume you didn't record it all at once. So tell us about, you know, you, you were an experienced uh, narrator before this. So yeah, you know, how did you, how to maybe even back up a little bit and tell us yeah. how you got into narrating audiobooks and then, mm-hmm. you know, then lead into this particular book. No, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, I got exposed to audiobooks as a, as a possible profession thing. Uh, back in 1994, well, when I went to New York in 90, after getting out of college, all I wanted to do was classical theater. And so mm. when I got there, I started working doing regional theater around the country. And, um, I also eventually became a member of the Pearl Theater, which is an off-Broadway classical theater that had, uh, its own acting company. So for about five years, I was the resident male juvenile in the company doing all the young prince roles and stuff. And <laughs> that eventually led me down to Washington, D.C., to the, Was- the the Shakespeare Theater at the Landsberg, uh, which is a big regional theater. And um, I was uh, playing some parts in Henry IV, parts one and two. And uh, mm-hmm. that's where I met my wife. We were we played opposite each other. We had a showmance, as we call it, and uh, <laughs> in the business. And um, it was a huge cast, and it took us a while to get to know everybody. But there was a guy in the in the cast. His name was David Hilder, who's now a playwright in New York. And uh, one day, he was younger than me. He's about 10 years younger than me. And uh, one day, we were sitting in the green room, and I, I asked him what most actors do. I said, so what do you do when you're not working? And he said, oh, I narrate audiobooks. 
And I thought, hmm. oh, that's sort of cool. What is that? Not that I was really, you know, on fire to do I I didn't even know what an audiobook was at that point. Right. I had a vague idea. But so sitting down over a cup of coffee, he sort of gave me an outline of what it was that a narrator did and the profession. And I was like, wow, that sounds like a cool gig, you know, for a performer. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah. He said, you know, if you, if you ever get down here, give me a holler. I can introduce you to some people. Well, sure enough, two years later, Shannon had lured me away from New York City with her feminine wiles, and <laughs> and uh, I started my career, my life over in D.C., and so I looked him up, and he introduced me to a man named Grover Gardner, who's a very well-known uh, and respected narrator in our profession. He, he also is a casting director for Blackstone Audio. Hmm. And so Grover uh, went over to his house, and people asked me, you know, why did you get into audiobooks? You know, did you want to have the thrill of narrating? And I said, no, I was tired of hanging sheetrock in between acting gigs. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I went over to his place and uh, I met Grover and he's, he's, uh, he's quite the character, really nice guy. You know, we're still friends. To, in fact, I spoke with him this evening. He called me up. To, he lives in Oregon with his wife and daughter. And hmm. um, so we made a demo and Grover shopped it around for me. And this is, this is how back in the day it was. My first two clients were Blackstone Audio and Books on Tape. I just started working for them, and they started sending me material. And initially, oh. I was doing things like Robert Heinlein, uh, Starship Troopers, and O'Henry's stuff, and um, and that was really the start of it. And initially, I was doing maybe one or two books a month. But over the years, uh, you know, I was still doing lots of television and film and theater. But as the years progressed, I kept getting more and more audiobook work and more and more nonfiction, which is, uh, frankly, it's much more difficult to narrate than fiction. Hmm. Um, I know you don't have the funny voices and all the dialogue, but trust me, yeah. if you're a narrator, the, the agreement's pretty general that nonfiction is much more difficult to make entertaining than yeah. fiction is. Hmm. And um, so that's, and then slowly over time, uh, I went full time as a narrator. So by, say, 2000, I was working, you know, at a pretty steady rate and um, uh, still doing a lot of fiction, but more and more nonfiction. And um, the, did you have time then in those days to listen to other audiobooks? Oh, yeah, I was fanatical. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> back in the day, there was no there was no Facebook to have groups where you could talk about what you do. Right. You know, and there was there weren't any chat rooms for us. So I learned on the job. I mean, that's my classical theater training really saved me. I tell people it took me about 30 to 40 books to become a narrator, hmm. to really wow. understand what the hell I was doing. Yeah. It's a lot more difficult than people think it is. It's so much more difficult. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not only, you know, it's not only, there's a video I have on my YouTube channel called, So You Want to Be an Audiobook Narrator. And in it, I tell people there's a little test because I get contacted l- uh, at least three times a week by people f- from all over the world, which blows my mind. Hmm. But- not, and where people where English is a second language. I mean, like everywhere from uh, Cairo, Egypt to Nairobi, Kenya to uh, Beijing to I mean, you name it. Yeah, it's crazy. And so anyway, the, the video basically says if you're interested in doing this, pick a book up, go f- sit in a closet and read out loud for three hours a day for two weeks straight and see if you still <laughs> want to do it. And and that usually takes care of about 99 percent of the people who contact me. Oh, interesting. Because so, it's not it's not so much a a talent thing. It's a temperament. Can you sit by yourself in a little box mm-hmm. directing yourself and stay on a project and stay focused on top of it? Cause you can't mumble your way through this stuff or you're not going to have any work. <laughs> you know, your audible, yeah. 
reviews are going to tell you know be all one star and no one's going to hire you right so um, there's kind of a correlation here with the pale king maybe um mm. i'm not sure if you've read the pale king sean mm -hmm. that all the, the irs stuff about yep. boredom and you yep. know just levitating at your cubicle and all that stuff. yes like, exactly there's, it a, takes there's a, a correlation here yeah it's it's in a general sense yeah i mean it's yeah. you know I, it, it's very zen you have yeah. to stay in the moment um but you're also when i shut the door to record i'm wearing four hats at once i'm the narrator performing i'm the director directing i'm the engineer making sure the recording is good enough mm -hmm. and i'm the producer making sure it comes in on time right. and that's a lot of those are a lot of hats to wear and yeah and that has nothing to do with my performance but everything to do with my performance mm -hmm. and so i tell people you know you you may think that you know this is you know i get i get stuff all oh people tell me i have a really great voice i'm like that's wonderful but that you know that has nothing to do with telling a story nor does it have to do with the reality of being in the trenches actually sitting here recording a book and what that actually takes um you know it's it, it, now granted you you know i mean i don't want to make it sound like i'm working in a coal mine or something <laughs> but just really but sacrificing for the human for yeah, the right. human race. Yeah, you know, right. I'm not going to have like miners lung when I finish, but <laughs> but you know, by the time I finish, I mean I I narrate two finished hours of material a day hmm. in two separate sessions. I, I work 2 hours in the morning and 2 hours in the evening. Hmm. I also teach for 3 hours a day. I teach narration technique to students hmm. around the country. Uh, actually in Canada, I have a new student in Buenos Aires. I have students in the UK. Oh cool. On Skype and so by the time I do all that, at the end of the day, I am talked and thought out. All I want to do is have a glass of wine and watch things blow up on TV, you know? <laughs> How well so, is it? We appreciate you sharing your uh, wine time with us tonight. That's yeah. right. You That's get, very generous. Of yeah, it, it was is, either but... you or watching things blow up, and I thought, oh, what the hell? I just... <laughs> Well, I appreciate that very much. Oh, and, you know, when you're talking here, I'm, I'm thinking of the timeline. You were you, you mentioned the year 2000, and by that point, you know, Infinite Jest had been out for four years. Yeah. And I remember buying some like Stephen King audiobooks in the late 90s. It's some John Updike audiobooks, but I don't think anyone at Little Brown had considered making a audiobook of Infinite Jest for years i assume it was just written off there oh yeah it's a huge project it's a lot of money to make people don't realize how much money it takes to do a regular audiobook you've mm. you know it's it's several thousands of dollars and you don't recoup those unless it's an a-list title it's more of an investment it's like investing in a stock right you know i've done books that it might take several years well the abraham lincoln book that's going to take years it may be even now it's only finally starting to break even. And I did mm. that book 10 years ago. Wow. Wow. You know, mm. and so and so it's it's also it sort of feels in a way like Hollywood where they have what they call big tent movies mm -hmm. that support all the little projects around them. Right. So you have like the Suicide Squad that's going to make a gajillion dollars or mm -hmm. Star Trek or Star Wars. And those profits help fund the smaller movies they want to make anyway. Mm -hmm. That either break even or make a little tiny money or might even lose money. Yeah. And audiobooks are like that. You build a catalog of stuff. Hmm. And um, so anyway, so I've, I've been narrating for for quite some time. I've done just about every genre you can imagine, which was fun, <laughs> yeah. you know, and challenging. I like the challenge of it. And and then around, I'm going to say around 2008 or nine, uh, Grover mentioned me to a man named John McElroy, who's an audiobook producer. And out of the blue, I got a phone call from him one afternoon. And we spent about 
gosh, we must have spent an hour or two just talking about everything, politics and kids and mm-hmm. religion and you name it. And, um, and then toward the end, he said, he said, I think I have a project in mind for you. I said, I'm, w- I'm waiting on a green light for it and you'll have to audition, but I think you'd be right for it. I'm like, okay. He said, it's called Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. You ever heard of it? I'm like, nope. And he said, <laughs> you know, because like I was saying to you guys before that we started that, you know, I narrate now, I, by that time I was narrating a book a week mm-hmm. and, or more, you know, and when you narrate a book a week, it's like you're only focused on the book you're recording and the book you're prepping. Yeah. And you just don't have a lot of headspace. You know, people ask me, like, what do you read for fun? I'm like, I don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I'm serious. I don't. I don't read for enjoyment. I, yeah. I, I'm always reading for work. Um, although there is a weird thing that's developed over the years is that when I, if I go on vacation and I'm away from my studio for like more than two days... I physically have to read something. I don't care if it's a cereal. <laughs> it might be a cereal box, but I've got to read something. I, out loud. I'm a, yeah. I'm, yeah. Well, not necessarily out loud. Just oh, okay. read something. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know. Um, and your brain expects the input. It does. It it's addictive. It's really addictive because when I'm in that mode, it's very much like, like uh, the psychologist uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. You get mm. into a state of flow with the work. And it's it's these endorphins get released in your head and you're just you're in a state of you're in a happy place. And um, <laughs> can you the, say that again? Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. <laughs> it's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He's a Hungarian psychologist or sociologist out of University of Chicago. Oh, no, the name is in Infinite Jest, actually. Yes, oh, I, I know. I've, yeah. I've said his name so many times. It's so funny. <laughs> I've just never heard anyone say it out loud. So yeah. I, I was relishing that. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I gave a talk at the Wallace Conference on Mario, and I, I gave the quote about Barry Loach where he shakes the fuliginous hand. <laughs> and, and, and I actually looked that word up. Uh, pronunciation-wise, last week before right. the conference, and just listened to it over and over, and practiced it, and actually like put a phonetic spelling in my conference paper that I read just so that I would remember how to say that word. So the pra- the practicing of words that don't come necessarily easily or ones you don't hear very often is is kind of a funny phenomenon, and I'm sure you hit that a lot with Infinite Jest. Welcome to my world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if any book, you know you. You know, that's one of those challenges that you... I'm doing a book right now about a man named Cliff Cates, who was a very famous Marine in World War One, hmm. who eventually became Commandant of the Marine Corps after World War Two, and his battlefield experiences. So I'm loaded up with all of these French towns and names, and I can't pronounce them like, you know, Marie Chevalier, like, ha, 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 blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you have to put... You have to... Which was a challenge in Infinite Jest because of uh, Marat. yeah. Um, all the Quebecois. Then I, uh, the Quebecois, I had to do, and I can't speak French to save my life. You know, <laughs> I can do it phonetically right. and I can read it. I can sort of read it. And that was, that was probably the biggest, when I finally got the text and I wrote John, I said, did I piss you off? Is that why you gave me this book to do all this <laughs> damn French? And, you know, we took, it was, it was, it was just, it was so painful because, you know, the le, le, and la, la, all those, you know, little yeah. things. And you're just like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, photo yeah. Roland, Roland, and, and you. Yeah. And then, of course, the accent. But so you, you're, you're challenged all the time with naming 
saying things that you don't know how to pronounce and you have to make it sound as if you you just it just rolls off it has to be authoritative right absolutely yeah you cannot stumble through it at all or it doesn't sound right (laughs) yeah and and that's why that french when they're you know when when all the french in there it was just such a bear i i swear to god every single french phrase you hear in there took at least five takes to get easily (laughs) yeah i bet (laughs) easily so um, so the book Infinite Jest is 56 hours. Yeah. Uh, what does that look like on your end in terms of, of recording and re-recording and doing takes? How many hours of actual recording do you think that ended up being like before you, you cut it all together? There's a kind of editing you do when you're narrating a book. It's called punch and roll. Mm-hmm. And if you think back to the days of tape, right? Like back in the 60s and 70s when they used to record records mm-hmm. on tape. Yeah. So... If they'd lay like a band. So if you'd lay down the drums and the bass, and now you're going to come in with the rhythm guitar. So you have the headphones on, and you're listening to the, the music. And just before you come in, the engineer hits record, and the, the magnetic spinning head punches into the recording and rolls forward with your layer of it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same idea. So when I'm narrating, I'll record until I screw up and then stop then back up a few few seconds, like five seconds or 10 seconds, Mm -hmm. hit play, roll forward until I'm for a pause and then hit the record button. So I punch in and then roll forward. So it's an additive process. Right. Right. So what you do is you have what's called a work to finished hour ratio. (laughs) So my general ratio is two to one. Hmm. So on on that book, though, is a little longer because of like the French and the, the formulas and and right. also because of dialogue. Dialogue is always more complex than nonfiction because mm-hmm. you want it to sound, you know, you have character voices, you want the dialogue to sound naturalistic. So I'm, I'm going to guess that it was actually more like three to one. Hmm. So that, let's say it's 60 hours, so that's 180 hours of actual jabbering away in the booth. Yeah. Huh. And you broke it into chunks, right? You didn't well, do yeah. in one month. So, yeah, so, so yeah. what happened with, with John was he said... Um, Okay, I've got this book. He said, you know, it, it hasn't been green-lighted yet, but in the meantime, let's do an, a couple of books together to get the feel for each other. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So we did a couple of books to get to know each other. You know, uh, I'm fortunate that at that point in my career, you know, if I don't like to work with somebody, I can pass on something. Mm-hmm. Um, but John's a great guy, and uh, we got along really well. And then from that conversation... It took us nine months to get the final green light from Hachette and then three more months before we actually started. And in those three months, they actually mailed me the text. They took the text and they actually printed it up on eight and a half by 11 paper. All in that in that form, it was over 2000 pages. Long. <laughs> wow. Wow. And it was lo- it was loose leaf. And so this this huge box arrived <laughs> at my house. And like by that bomb. time, it's yeah, like it was. Going it was huge. <laughs> Now, granted, I'd read the book by that time. Okay, so I, like, pre-read, just bared, pre-read I just, it. Yeah, I just, yeah. Yeah, I just bared down and read the damn thing cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And and I was really peaked. I mean, I was really hot to do it because it was so hard. It was, It is still the hardest book I've ever narrated. Yeah, and the most rewarding, you said, as well, in your joy of soft. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was because it was because it was well-written. It was, you know, and the characters are well-drawn. There's yeah. challenges that, for the, the average listener, you just don't understand that as a narrator are challenges in storytelling technique that are really complex and they're things that I teach as a, as a coach, mm-hmm. you know, say for instance, um, 
I know I'm jumping ahead. Well, you, well, let me let me get up to speed here. <laughs> so, so we finally start, and basically we would do ten. We would work one week out of every six to eight. So it took, we met about once every other month. It took a year to record the book hmm. um, because we had other contractual agreements with other books we were working on, and then it took me a chunk of time to prep the next ten hours. Ten hours is a normal week of narration for me. Hmm. And so I'm scoring the text like you would a piece of music, like breathe here, right. hit that word, lower your voice here, you know, and making notes and all that stuff. So when I'm in the booth recording and John's Skyped in directing me or whatever, and um, then uh, I, I can sail through the session as quickly as possible. Right. There's not, I'm not stumped. And I've done all my research on pronunciation Mm-hmm. You know, and all the made-up words he has in the text, which drove <laughs> me insane. So, but when you get into the, the subtlety of it, it's so much more... Uh, okay, I'll give you an example of, of something that the normal listener wouldn't appreciate, but that it's it's so apparent in the writing. When we first meet Ken Erdetti, mm-hmm. and that whole scene when he's waiting for the woman to come in with the weed, right? <laughs> right. Okay, so that that what makes that piece so wonderful is is that it, it, it starts from literally zero. Where is the woman who said she'd come? Mm-hmm. She said she would come. She had promised. And it's, it's very slow and deliberate. And then slowly over that whole scene, it starts to pick up speed and get faster and faster. And yet, he helps you, I mean, as a narrator, as a writer, he gives you a, a moment of respite because he has those little sections in there where he talks about the bug coming out of the wall. Right. And so that bug acts, if you think of it like a car getting, or a train getting faster and faster, what happens is you're going at one speed, like first gear for a while, and then the bug comes out. It's like pushing down on the clutch and floating for a few seconds. Mm. And then in that, so when you come back to the story, you've shifted to second gear, and then you hit another one. You hit the clutch, you've closed. Now you're going into third gear. And so what happens is it progressively gets faster and faster and faster until the very end when both the door and the phone ring at the same time and then it that's the high point of the tempo of that scene mm-hmm. but it's ex- i use it as i actually as a teaching tool with my students it's an exercise in deliberate tempo huh. how to start from zero and gradually build your read tempo to 100 hmm. percent over the course of about 25 minutes i love that that's very and that's, cool yeah that's that. something that most people would not you know, you're not going to get... And then there's another one he does when... Um, oh, my goodness, I blanked. Who's our cocaine addict? Uh, Randy Lentz? Randy Lentz, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that scene <laughs> where he finally get He goes on his cocaine jag and he gets caught killing the dog and the Canucks are after him. Yeah. That yeah. scene is interspersed with uh, our... Uh, um, I'm blanking on everybody tonight. All his <laughs> names written down, too. Well, back at... back Right, but well, back at the Ennett house, Right. When he's trying to get the people all inside and are outside yes. to move their cars, that scene is really slow. Randy's is very fast, and it's so you have fast and slow, and the and it's the fast scene is getting faster, and the slow scene is almost getting a little slower until they collide. When the two characters, right? Canucks, yeah, yeah. The, when the Canucks meet, um, Gately. Gately, thank mm-hmm. you, God, Don Gately. <laughs> that's so. But you have that's it's a really wonderfully done. It's very cinematic that way. You cut back and forth between the two scenes. And they get closer and closer and closer till they collide. And that, once again, is an exercise in tempo control. Hmm. So you have, you can't, you have to, you know, 
if you've ever been around someone on the cocaine jag, you know that they begin to talk faster and faster and faster. And that's the way those scenes go with Randy. Hmm. And yet Don is deliberately trying to like get, you know, he's like, he's like pushing jello, trying to get everybody out there to move their cars. And it's frustrating and slow. Hmm. And so you're moving back and forth between those two tempos. And that's something that the normal listener doesn't realize and shouldn't, frankly. It should just happen. It should just wash over them. But that's the kind of stuff that made Infinite Jest so challenging and so rewarding to finally nail. Hmm. Well, and it seems like that's the sort of thing that even a beginner narrator wouldn't nail or no. wouldn't pick up on as well. No. And even this is another good reason why I think fiction is better read by actors in most cases than their own authors. Like it's interesting to hear authors mm. read, but because they're not professional narrators, you know, they don't pick up on stuff like that. And it sounds very much like they are reading rather than, you know, acting or performing. Right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, a quick story back in 1992, I went to I, with my first wife, Karen, she was a writer and, all of her friends were writers or performers, and um, we went to this thing at the Delacorte, near the Delacorte Theater in Central Park. It was like one of these reading under the stars kind of thing. They had like four or five authors hmm. going to read their stuff and, you know, bring your blanket and some wine and cheese and bread. And just, it was a really cool thing. I'd never been to one. Hmm. And so they had like, I, I want to say they had like four authors. And the, and the rock star of the evening, the last person was Tom Robbins. Oh, you know, cool. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> nice. so I had just finished. She had turned me on to like I'd read Jitterbug Perfume and Skinny Legs and all. And yeah. I was like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. So there's about, I don't know, like 10 of us who went to the, the park. And so anyway, they start with the, you know, the least known authors first and they're going to work their way up to Tom. And um, the first guy gets up there and he was freaking horrible. And it's his own stuff. <laughs> right. And he was hard. He was painful. Now, by this time, you know, I was working off Broadway at a classical repertory theater, and all I did was deconstruct text and speak it for a living. <laughs> and But he was terrible. And then the next guy got up there, and he wasn't quite as bad, but he still sucked. And the third guy, was he was okay. He was middling. And then Mr. Robbins came out, and he was amazing. Mm-hmm. He's this courtly southern gentleman with this wonderful accent, and he had time. his timing was down. You know, he was perfect. And so at the end of the evening, we're all walking back to our apartment in Midtown, and Someone said, hey, Pratt, what'd you think? And I said, well, it's one thing to write it. It's another thing to talk it. <laughs> and and they all just jumped up like, oh, Mr. Classical Theater. Oh. And I'm like, no, I stuck to my guns. I said, those guys sucked, except for the La- Robins. Yeah. Those guys were horrible. Just because they wrote it does not mean they know how to perform it. Right. And the two, you know, this is a, I read it. There was an article in the New York Times recently where the, he had this, this writer He's like a professor of poetry or something. I don't know. He was you could tell he had an axe to grind. The whole point of his article was like, well, audiobook listeners are yearning from authors to read more of their own material. I'm like, mm. bull crap. Yeah. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not because that the two do not correlate. Right. I mean, li- I mean, you've 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 heard Stephen King speak, right? Mm-hmm. You've heard him narrate his own stuff. He got that voice, that I mean, I love Stephen King. He's good for a great scare, but his voice, you know, would make you want to, it's like fingers and nails on a chalkboard. Uh, it's not thematic and for his content. No, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> right. You know. And, and there are cases that go even beyond that where I think that the audiobook narrator or the actor can actually 
take a, a thing that's maybe not great literature and make it even better than the source material. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's ironic that as an established narrator, mm-hmm. there are many times, and I've, I've spoken with my colleagues who, you know, we've been around for 5, 10, 15 years or more, 20, and that sometimes you get this backhanded compliment where you'll have a major publisher contact you to do an A-list title that's so poorly written. So you basically have been hired to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear because they can't they can't hand that off to a lesser narrator because that person doesn't know how to do that Hmm. you know it's like when you it's like when you see a a really great actor on a movie who has a little tiny part and they take that little tiny part and make it something amazing like uh alec baldwin and glengarry glenn ross when he played the real estate guy from the corporate office oh yeah i mean he he was so good in that he got a a nomination for an oscar i mean Hmm. if you get you know a really talented actor can take a little tiny part and just make it into amazing and you get a so sometimes as a narrator we get books that are crappy but they're going to sell a ton Mm -hmm. and so they need us to rescue the material as it were Hmm. So yeah, that does happen on a regular basis. And there are some writers, I think, who are, you know, their voice works better with their material. Um, but I, I, Wallace, you know, his material that he, I, I've heard him, he recorded the audio book of Brief Interviews. And yeah, with Consider Hideous the Men, Lobster as well. And, and yeah. Consider the Lobster. Mm-hmm. But in both cases, um, or at least in Brief Interviews, not the full thing. Like it's not an unabridged, it's abridged. Oh, yeah. Well, it's exhausting. They don't realize what they're getting into. <laughs> well, and I think that even technically there were some things in there. It's just like they, they just couldn't figure out a way to do it because he played with the text on the page so much right. that it, it would be almost incoherent in some cases to, to try to read it out loud. Mm-hmm. Well, we had a we had an issue that John and I sort of locked horns on about all the abbreviations that are in the text. Right. Yes. And what I teach and what I do, especially with nonfiction is there's a misconception in nonfiction especially that that the narration is a verbatim recitation of the text and it's not. Hmm. It's 99% the same, 99.9 in fact, but you tweak it all the time. So, you know, you don't say in the quote above, you say in the previous quote. Right. Or you don't say, now the reader will hear, you don't say, no, it's the listener. And hmm. so one of the things you deal with all the time are things like, you know, like when you run across an acronym, okay? Yeah, like O-N-A-N. Well, yeah, or whatever. Well, so if you have an acronym, let's say it's NATO, mm-hmm. right? You never assume the listener knows what the acronym means. So you would say, uh, and then in 1986, NATO, which is an acronym for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. You always insert that. So that you, and when I make a change in the text, I, I go by two touchstones. One is mm-hmm. author intention, and the other is listener comprehension Mm. so if my proposed change satisfies both of those things i'll do it i'll just do it Mm -hmm. and so we had this issue that john and i sort of wrestled with with all the abbreviations and i said john i said we yeah you have these diehard fans that are going to know what hh stands for or Mm o-n-a-n or whatever and sometimes you can once you establish it you like a once you establish a especially like an acronym then you can just say nato but some of these are so weird and like saying HH all the time, it, it, it didn't flow well and it felt confusing. And the minute a listener goes, huh? And they're out of the story, you've, you've failed. Hmm. And so my to go-to option almost 90% of the time for that book was to 
say, Headmaster's House, hmm. you know, or what it did for HH or, you know, others like it. Right. And, and that's so subtle. I, I don't know that most, even hardcore fans would notice that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's true. Um, I, I think it's more of a difference. Um, you know, there are some other things in the in the text. You know, obviously the big one is in notes, and I want to get to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. A, a, after this, but yeah. the with like even you know what some scholars would call paratext. Like at the beginning of there are some chapters, even though none of the chapters in the book are numbered, there are some chapters that have the little moon circle symbol at the top. Was that even on the script that you got? That little thing. No, from the they book? they decided not to. Hmm. There was no way to verbalize that. Hmm. Right. You know, there's a concept that I teach my students called the four voices of nonfiction, and I say that you have different voices or characters when you're looking at nonfiction. So the listener can subtly pick up when you're talking, oh, that's a chapter heading. Hmm. Oh, I see. Now he's laying out the, the, psycho, the intellectual argument. Oh, no, that's a comment. Oh, he's, now he's quoting something. Hmm. And you do different things to your voice, like characters. They really are like four different characters. Hmm. And, but sometimes you run across stuff. You're just like, I can't. There's nothing I can do that would verbalize a symbol. So those were those. Were, I know what you're talking about, yeah. but those were just they were, they were just taken off the text. That was that was out of my hands before I got the text. Hmm. And I mean, the bigger question there is like, you know, Wallace was big into playing with all the elements of a book. He loved mm-hmm. the copyright page mm-hmm. and the dedication page, yeah. and you know, anywhere where he could muck around and kind of put his stamp on it, he did. Um, but I'm curious, like, where do you think that? leaves audiobooks when they don't really have this thing like are there other sort of paratextual elements that um audiobooks do have that you know you've kind of mentioned some of the subtle things like what what were some of the other kind of subtle things that you had to hash out about you know taking care of this book well you know we had instances well generally speaking an audiobook is a different it's a different it's a slightly different no it is it's a different animal than the written text yeah. it just is Okay, you know, we do things like we don't we don't do the you can argue that any book we do is not is not uh, unabridged because we don't do the table of contents. Right. We never we never do the acknowledgments because, frankly, listeners don't give a damn about your great, you know, you know, that long list and your great aunt Mildred and your first football coach and your they don't care. They want the story. Yeah, that's what they want. They, you know, here's the secret of the magic cell phone by Gus Johnson chapter one and you're off and running yeah because they're in that's their car they, they have a 10 minute drive right. they just want yeah. like give me they 10 minutes they of wanted, story yeah right they want to be entertained mm-hmm. you know well, and I gotta say there there was a choice made in an audiobook of David Foster Wallace that it does annoy the crap out of me for <laughs> it's both it's both flesh and not which is a nonfiction collection of essays and in the book they had interspersed um, some of his word notes, like he just kept all of these lists of words that he wanted to use in his writing. And they took, I mean, this is thousands of words or hundreds of words. And they just put those words in their definitions as sort of filler between the essays, which works fine because you can skip it in the book very easily. Mm, right. But in the audio book, they read all those words and it just feels like you oh. almost got ripped. You got ripped off. Like no one wants to listen to. No. Five minutes of just a list of words. <laughs> well, that actually, and that le- that actually leads into the concept and the whole kerfuffle around the endnotes. Yeah, right. See, so so what? So when 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 we were discussing the project, and I remember talking to John about this, I said, "What do you want to do with these endnotes? They're sort of funny." He said, "We're not doing them," hmm. and he said, "You know, that's from higher up," hmm. and and I agreed at the time. I still agree. 
Because here's why. Because for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're going to jump out of the jump out of the story, which is complex enough as it is, mm-hmm. shall we all agree? Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> right, which is which is hard enough to follow at times as is. Yeah. To jump out to these end notes, and some of them are really funny and interesting, and others are like just like ibid this and blah blah blah. And yeah, right. You jump in. You know, when I uh, let me digress again within my digression. When I teach my students, and I say, when you have appendix and footnotes. You have to decide, are you going to do some, none, or all? And my usual go-to option is none, hmm. because in a regular book, in a regular piece of nonfiction. And I say, the reason why is that if the book is well-written, it should end on a really strong the-end kind of feel. And then if you've got like three or four appendix, where you have like a long, rambling interview with somebody and a book of websites to go to, <laughs> no one's going to give a crap about that, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. And then, and so... I, I almost never do those unless the unless I think, well, then that, that works. That one actually adds some value. I'll right. put it in. Yeah. And footnotes are to me are footnotes are like Harry Potter candy. Meaning <laughs> if the if the candy if the footnote is really interesting, like it's cinnamon flavored, great, I'll weave it in. But if it's the like booger flavored candy, <laughs> no, it's not going in. You know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, and so and and but the, the the problem is that like there's no way they can weave these in because when I mean well the classic example is J O N Condensa's film filmography, Ography, yeah, which is oh, by itself is an hour long. Right. So if yeah. I'm in that thing that, for an yeah. hour mm-hmm. and you're trying to go to work, and you get halfway through it, then halfway through the other end, and then suddenly you go back to the story, you're gonna go, wait a minute, where the hell are we at in this story? Yeah, yeah, like there's a huge logistical problem for this book specifically with that because the endnotes are are so long in some cases like yeah. like eight pages for one for one end note that the the when you're reading the book you have the luxury to flip back and remind yourself what the context of this footnote is or this end note but then yeah. in an audio situation you're now like 45 minutes gone from when that little chime came in or the right. woman's and voice that, saying like 45 right. yeah so so how do you how do you na- how do you negotiate that for your listener I mean, you, can't. you really can't in this situation. So I, I appreciate yeah. the difficulty of that decision. To But, but, but I will say a big but here. I mean, there's a couple buts, well, but. Well, for sure. Yeah. The big but is that the book had been out for like 12, 13, 14 years. Right. And so you had, it was not a brand new book. So you had people who had already read the book and maybe they bought the whole thing hoping to get that filmography. Well, or, yeah, that's or true. Or to get one section. And the the issue I think was that it was it had these fans. I'm just curious, did it ever come up like, oh, some some readers who have loved this book might not like this decision, or was it just like it's a technical thing, like we don't know how to do it and it's not really going to work? Mm-hmm. Both. It, it was both. Yeah, it was it's both. certainly controversial and, that they were left out originally, right? Um, right. Because and, like my, oh, yeah. myself and a lot of other people that I know would argue that the, that the endnotes are essential part of this text. You can't. Well. Th- Read and digest without the end notes, right? Right, they are, but the technology is still not there to mm-hmm. bounce back and forth. There's yeah. no way to do it. Right, yeah. And so, you know, the original idea was we're going to record just the story mm-hmm. and then we'll have a PDF download of the end notes for them to reference. Right. That was the original idea mm-hmm. because, you know, when you, because the end notes themselves, okay, so, so we released the book and then there was great gnashing of teeth and rending of clothing for the David Foster Wallace fans. Right. And really and really shitty harsh reviews on Audible. And Oh man, I'm sorry. Um which is, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, listen, I 
you know, I've been I've been in show business for my entire life, and you know, mm-hmm. there's always people who are going to think something you do sucks, and right. people who love you and people think you're okay. Those three groups always exist. Yeah. And um, but I thought, you know, it's one of those things. It's like it's you know, everybody has that. There's certain. It's like it's like sports fans. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, when you do a book, I, like sports books are my least favorite genre to do. Not for the sport, for the pronunciation of the the athletes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because if you mispronounce the name of the athlete. Or, or they think you have, hmm. oh my God, these people go apoplectic. <laughs> they just go apoplectic. And, you know, and you can't Sack win pop. because like, you know, like you might have a, like, for instance, uh, there's a golfer, a very famous golfer out of France. And in his home country, his name is pronounced Dubisson, right? With a Gallic N that all sound in your nose. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, we either say his name is Dubisson or <laughs> Dubisson, hard N. Well, I had I did a book where he was in. I had to decide how to say his name. I had to pick one of those, knowing that I was going to piss off some of his fans because I quote mispronounced his name. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that's what I got on Audible. <laughs> so, you know, we knew going into it that there was going to be some level of blowback. Yeah. And so, you know, but that's not my that's not my control. Hmm. You know, I'm like the publisher. You know, they're they're the one writing the check and they're the one thinking this stuff through. Yeah, and. Right. And I, but from my perspective, I'm like, look, there's no way to integrate this technically into the recording hmm. that makes sense as far as the flow of the story. Right. And then, so the book had been out maybe, oh, I'm going to say maybe two months and all these, you know, these, these, this blowback came in from the group, from, from fans. And then John said, you're not going to believe this. We're going to do the end notes. I'm like, oh, Okay. <laughs> And so we did them and they were, his, you know, I'm like, they were really fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, but you, they're standalone. Still, even so, they're standalone. Mm-hmm. There's no way to integrate the two. Yeah. Cause um, you have to technically know, the, go back and forth between the audio files. When you get the prompt right. in the main text, you would then have to press pause, you know, go to the other book. Go to the other file. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. You know, and so, I mean, the technology is not cut up with the way you would do it as a written piece of text. Yeah. And I appreciate the fact that that was his one of his styles, that disruptive reading style mm-hmm. that he he had. That was part of who he was as a writer. I understand that, and that's one. The it is fun when you read the book to go to flip back because once you get hooked on them, they're really fun. Yeah, you know, to flip back and forth like that. But but as an audio book, that's why they're like I said, they're two different animals. Yeah, and wow. sometimes and sometimes they just don't sync up. Hmm. I attribute that whole decision to Nick Maniitis and that he, <laughs> he got one of the, I think as far as I know, he got the only advanced copy of the audiobook and reviewed it on his site, the Howling Fantods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he is definitely the most influential Wallace fan there is and knows, you know, the, the people at Little Brown and Hachette and Wallace's agent and estate and his review of it was basically i cannot recommend this to my fans and that that was enough he had enough back and forth with hachette and little brown that that i believe was what pushed them over the edge to go back and do it well my my argument back to him would be so we recorded them now are you happy with the, what you've got, given the technology we have? <laughs> right. I mean, seriously. I, I, I would say yes. I mean, for me, I'm not going to speak for him. I can't, you know, he's not here to defend himself. Although he was on one of our earlier podcasts. <laughs> but he, um, I, you know, I would say yes. I would say even though it's not a perfect solution, that it's better than just having the PDF. Yeah, well, and you like know, I, that's Like fine. I say, for me, I do, um, 
you know, I don't sit down with yeah. Infinite Jest, the audiobook, to just say, okay, I'm going to sit here for 12, 20 hours today and listen to it. Right. I, I, I sort of, like I say, I've read the book first time 20 years ago. So I am more like likely to pick and choose little pieces and say, oh, I want to go and find that footnote mm-hmm. or that endnote. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's much more likely for me to um, pick things out rather than to plow through, you know, 10 hours at a time. Yeah. I, one of my favorite, I mean, beyond the, the one that really always sticks with me, and I, boy, I hope I don't screw this up, <laughs> is the description in the end notes of Blood Sister, One Tough Nun. <laughs> yeah. It's probably yes. one of the, I, it, you know, I, I narrate a lot of comedy. I narrate uh, with Three Blackstone Audio. I, I'm, I'm part of a, t- a small team of narrators. We mm-hmm. narrate their magazine every month online. And I do a lot of articles that are that are comedic in their flavor. Right. Yeah. And I do a lot of comedy and it's, and, uh, that piece alone, I assigned it to my, st- I had to cut it down, <laughs> but I, cause it's such a long piece, but it's one of the funniest bits. I, the whole time I was doing it, I was just chortling away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still one of, and that, you know, and, and once again, with his writing, there's that section toward the end when they're fighting in the office between her and the, the mother superior. And there's this one sentence that's literally a page. It's like it's like uh, I'm gonna say Faulkner. It's like one sentence of all this. You know, she has these inner realizations about what's going on, the iconography of the cross, and right. you know, she's gonna carry on the cycle of retribution. And it's one sentence. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, I I worked on that sentence for probably an hour. Yeah. Just wow. to get the rhythm of it right yeah, and bet. the melody of it right. Hmm. I'm and, gonna go back and listen to that. Now. Oh my yeah, god, that was so funny! That it was, sounds good. It made it made the whole end notes worth doing. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and you know, someone made a great comment to me at the uh, at the conference last weekend. They said they just we just released the episode with with Edmund Waldstein, the Cistercian monk. And someone yeah. said to me, you know, Dave, you guys really missed an opportunity here. You didn't even talk about Blood Sister, One Tough Nun with Edmund, God, who's a Cistercian monk. And I was like, oh, no, you're right. That was the biggest mistake we could have made. Well, there's that. And there's another one in the early one when the, when the you know, the, the tough girl starts to get like, you know, there's that long montage he describes about them getting to know, you know, this whole montage of them becoming yes. friends yeah, yeah. with the getting to know you soundtrack. And it lasts, <laughs> the whole scene lasts 30 minutes. I laugh. So, I mean, having worked in film and TV yeah. on and off my entire life, that whole month, that montage is so, is so classic. It's a cliche. Yeah. And when he's describing it, I just, I, I remember working through the whole thing and just having to stop and just giggle like a schoolgirl because <laughs> it was so funny because all those little bits, you know, that they describe yeah. that are in that he describes it, they're perfect. Yeah. You know, there's so many. And people ask me that, too. It's like, what's your favorite scene? I said, like, I don't have one. There's yeah. too many. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's the scene, you know, there there might be the scene. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, one of the most one that has a lot of pathos to it mm-hmm. is the scene where young J.O. and Condenza is with his father getting the car. Okay. And his yeah. father's getting drunker and drunker in that scene. Once again, that's a and that's a scene about how do you modulate up the the drunkenness of a character right. <laughs> as they drink through a scene. It's a long scene, mm-hmm. but that scene has so much pathos in it and yeah. so much, you know, and and then um, there's the scene with uh, Stitt having the early morning talk with them and they're freezing their butts off, mm-hmm. talking about pain, and um, <laughs> then of course the. Uh, uh, God, I, well, I could just go on and on. They, they, oh, he's so, because of the length of the book, there's every character gets one really damn good 
extended scene. Yeah. That just well, like you know, with uh, uh, the uh, transvestite drug addict who who freaks out in the subway. Poor Tony. Yeah. After yeah, poor Tony after after he's been um, in the library, mm-hmm. basically you know shitting himself to death, detoxing, yeah, detoxing and everything, you know. But they all have scenes like that, yeah. and they're just they're so wonderful. And uh, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I. I don't listen to my own material anymore. I yeah. always tell people, they ask me, like, do you proof your material? Listen to it. I'm like, I would rather take a beating than listen to my own voice. <laughs> I feel I the same way, through... like, editing this podcast, you know, like, hearing it all, all back. I'm always just oh. mortified by my own voice. Yeah. yeah. I just, I'm just, well, think about doing that four to six <laughs> hours. And you're teaching, so you're just yeah. talking the whole time. Yeah. So there are very, very few books I will listen to. Mm-hmm. And I've taken the time to listen to Infinite Just twice. Oh, nice. And I'm like, oh, I'm very proud of it. It was so bloody hard to do. Yeah. And we did it for, it took a year. I mean, it was so weird. I'd never yeah. worked on a project that was so complex over such a long period of time. Usually yeah. I prep a book on a Monday morning. I walk in the studio and it's like by Friday or Saturday, I'm done with it. And it's focus, 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 focus. It's off to the proofer to be, you know, I get notes back a few weeks later. I, I record my fixes. The engineer drops them in. It goes through mastering, and then it gets released a few weeks later. But this one was just ongoing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, with all the, the damn French that came back to bite me in the butt, <laughs> it was so difficult. And I apologize. I would like to officially apologize to everybody who speaks French <laughs> about how horrible <laughs> my French was. I, you know, I didn't, I never claimed to be a native speaker all right, yeah. at all. I was, you know. I've been convinced so far, Sean. So like, like kudos <laughs> what, how to bad, you. How bad my French is? No, that, that you do it in an authoritative and convincing way. And I'm a, I'm a Canadian. Uh, I'm not a French Canadian, but you know, I took French for like, like eight years in school. So you, you're doing uh, it better than I am, man. Oh my God. It was, it was, it was just endless. <laughs> it was painful. Yeah. Hey, did was you painful. ever hear, did you ever hear Wallace read the, the consider the lobster audiobook where he did read the footnotes but they changed they like changed the tenor of his voice yeah it, was just and made it sound really voice. tinny yeah, yeah i uh, thought that was weird i yeah. thought that was a really odd choice mm. i didn't you know well you never know with some producers you just never know what they're going to want to do mm. um, and and he had to do things like okay now we're back at the part of the text where i was talking to this exactly one guy. and yeah. that's exactly what would have yeah. happened had we integrated the end notes into the story and the decision was that was too that was too disruptive in and of itself Hmm. so i mean there was to be perfectly honest i think that there was the end notes with that book were a no-win situation Hmm. nothing we would have come up with would have made would have been a perfect fit to make enough people happy Hmm. right to keep the narrative flow of the book and to keep people interested and and you see that and that is you know i always when i teach my students i'm like the, the the first job of an audiobook First job is always to be entertaining first. Hmm. That's the first job. Interesting. So in fiction, that's easy because fiction, written fiction, its first job is to always be entertaining. In nonfiction, it gets harder because nonfiction's job, as it's written, is always to be educational or informative. Yeah. So you have to you have to repurpose it. You have to make it entertaining first, so they stick around for the in- information. But the overriding thing for any audiobook is it has to be entertaining first. And if you start going back and forth with all of that kind of disruption of the narrative text, mm. it for the casual listener, you know, right. think about the person, not the hardcore Wallace fan, right. yeah. but somebody who might have read something else he's done or heard about this book and wants to give it a try. Yeah. And if it's so disruptive in its its narrate, it's like, it's like 
I actually sat down one time and tried to listen to Ulysses by James <laughs> Joyce. And it was, I couldn't do it. I couldn't get through it. Hmm. You know, I mean, reading it was just a nightmare anyway, but trying to listen to Ulysses was so disruptive. Hmm. And I just like, I give up. I can't, I can't enjoy this. I can't follow it. And that, I think that was, I mean, not necessarily that was their specific example, but I think they were afraid that by integrating the, the footnotes like that and having to reintroduce the story plot line yeah. would have been too disruptive for mm. the casual listener. And that's what, you know, ultimately you're, you're trying to, you, you know, you can't satisfy a hardcore fan of an author. You're actually sort of aiming for the, the novel, let's give this person a try, listener. Right. As well, you have to meet. That's the that's mm. going to be potentially your biggest audience. Yeah, hmm. that's interesting. Um, going back to that, the question of favorite scenes that you were reading. One of them that stood yeah. out to me as being as being really funny and engaging was the the seas narrative where he's with poor Tony Kraus and they're uh, they they have the hot shots incident. And oh yeah, and so this also raises the question of of the way that you perform accents for different characters or, uh, or or you perform like distinct voices for different characters. So Mario has a quite yeah. distinct kind of, yeah. kind of like mellow, almost pathetic kind of voice in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, you know, Idris Arcelanian has like, you know, like an East Indian accent that you perform. So I was kind of wondering like how, like how, how did you guys navigate the question of how do we perform these characters and, um, was this a, was this a, like a higher up decision? Was this a decision that you got to make as sort of, did you have creative control in this process? What was kind of the, uh, the setup um, for that? For, I, I was given control over that. Yeah. I mean, I because by that time, I, I guess when I narrated that book, I was up to about 600, 500, 600 books. And hmm. they're like, well, you know, they trust me to make the right choice. Hmm. Um, but I have a, there's, there's what I, what I do and what I teach about voices is a like a three-tiered method of coming up with a voice. Hmm. So the first tier is when you're reading the text, you're looking for any kind of descriptions about the character. So let's say it says the man is a 55-year-old man from Georgia who chain smokes cigars and is very aggressive. <laughs> so you've got a voice like that that comes out of you when you talk him like that, you know? <laughs> Other times you're looking for clues like, Idri, you know, the, the East Indian kid, it was just his name. And then you look at the syntax of the language and then you begin to talk like, I must go to the bathroom, you see, because that is where I must be going. Because that's the language. That's the way it's written. Right. right? So you're looking for, you look clue. It's always about, it's the old thing we say about Shakespeare is like, all the clues you need to know how to play a scene in Shakespeare are in the text itself. Oh, yeah. Huh. You just have to be smart enough to pick them out. Yeah. So that's the that's the first year. You're looking for descriptors. That's the first thing. Yeah. The second thing you go for, if you don't have that, is then you marry up a voice that you think fits from a voice you know, whether it's a a celebrity or a close friend. Hmm. Um, for instance, like uh, I have my Ronald Reagan voice, which is great for like kindly old doctors and sheriffs and farmers. <laughs> and he. So if you listen to the opening scene. One of those old men at that entrance exam yeah. sounds like Ronald Reagan. Well, I see here that you've got a, <laughs> you have a, well, we're just wondering about these drops and scores. And I'm not trying to be a perfect fit. I don't want you to think, oh, that's Ronald Reagan. Right. I'm channeling that general feel. Huh. Right. And so I have different, so, so I have different ideas in my head about people I know personally or that I yeah. or celebrities or famous people I've heard speak. Right. So that's the second tier. And then the third tier is when you have scenes where 
if you have so for instance if you have a scene that's got like five german men between the ages of 25 and 30 mm-hmm. right what you have to do in that case is you you just give each one one vocal affectation so one speaks aggressively one speaks slowly one speaks happily one has a nasality so <laughs> you just give them just enough of a of a of an affectation yeah so the listener goes, oh, that's Hans talking to Dieter. Right. You know, and so you go through these different, t- that's what I do anyway. Hmm. And so you make it simple. And but of course, you also have your cheat sheet. I have a cheat sheet of descriptors about every single character. And of course, in this book, it just went on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, yeah, that, that occurs to me, though, that, I, you know, I've only, I can only recall one audio book that I've listened to that brought in women to do the women, the female dialogue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I know that that's not feasible for m- most books. And I, I'll tell you, it was a brief life, a brief, wondrous life of Oscar. Wow. Oh, yeah. By Juno Diaz. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. And it really uh, to me, it was one of those books that I thought was better. The audio book was as good as hmm. the, the reading the book itself and really was more entertaining because it had this sort of really performative. It's like a stage play kind of like listening to a stage play or something. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I guess there, you know, when you have one voice doing other characters, like in your mind, you're aware of that. Like you're very aware that, you know, this is one person reading multiple parts Mm -hmm. Um, in that. And in that way, that's more like reading the book. Like, you know, you have this voice in your head and then you might modulate it a bit. You know, if it says Mr. T said, yeah, you know this. Or, <laughs> I pity the fool. Right. It's like well, you can't read that and you know not not do it in his voice, right? But Quit it's still in, in, right, yeah, right. in your head. It's not someone else's head. So I guess you know there, there's more complexity. You know, my biggest takeaway so far is there's way more complexity to every little decision that goes into even oh, a yeah. normal normal book, much less a book, you know, that's a thousand pages long. Mm. Well, yeah, and you have you know you have to, uh, and then. And then what you guys don't know is like, you know, well, for me, like when I was talking about modulating the text, getting faster and faster, right. you have you can't do that all in one big, long take. You actually have to break down the text into little pieces and you just record little piece by little piece and you stitch it together with the software. Hmm. So it seamlessly gets faster and faster. Right. The other thing you, you also what I teach my students is if you have a scene with more than three people you actually don't try. You don't try to do it like a puppet show. Like I can't pay the rent, but you must pay the rent. I'll pay the rent, <laughs> right? You can't. You know you because what happens is is when you have multiple care, and of course, especially in Infinite Jest, because you have lots of dialogue that's not attributed. Yeah, you have to figure out who the hell's speaking. Right. And so, what happens in those situations, for me at least, is I don't try to do them live, as it were, like if I was doing a radio play. What I'll do is I'll do one line, like Mario's line, and then I'll stop. And then I'll back up and I'll listen to it as Hal and then respond as Hal. Hmm. Then back up, listen to Hal's thing, <laughs> and then respond as his mother. Oh, yeah. But So it's so what it, that does is it gives each voice more clarity in its own voice. And it makes the reaction, for me at least, more realistic. Hmm. So I'm coming from, I'm listening to it as the new character every time. And... You know, there was there were a number of scenes like there's one that's I remember there's that scene where Hal's watching the video cartridge. He's in the one of the rec rooms and the girls come in yeah. and they all kick off their shoes. That was built literally line by line. Hmm. That was not done on the fly, as it were. Wow. Um, uh, 
you know, you at least that's how I do it because, huh. for like I said, for me it gives me a clear. It makes each voice more distinct. Right. That's why your ratio goes up with the dialogue. I Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you can't. Because if you bounce back and forth between three or four characters, what happens is, is there's a little microseconds wasted going. Wait, oh wait, that guy's Scottish and he's the old Scottish guy. Okay, right. and then oh wait, that's the young girl from Brooklyn. And the time it takes you to wrap your head around that, what happens then is, you throw the rhythm of the scene off. In other words, the dialogue, the back, like you and I, all three of us are having this dialogue back and forth, and it's happening at a fairly quick pace. But if I had to do that live and I get the rhythm off, suddenly one person answers a little slowly, <laughs> and it throws the rhythm of the scene off. And you can't have that because then it, then it takes the listener out of the scene. Hmm. And like those are said, all... You're, you're thinking like a director as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, That's cool. Um, and it's... You know, it's just something that I I learned on my own. I mean, I of the well, I'm up this Christmas. I'll have done 900 books. <laughs> wow! And, Congrats! Yeah, that's a milestone. And it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And um, but of the 900, I probably have only done 10 in a studio with a director. Hmm. All the others have been me learning, listening, you know, hmm. taking in my own experience, listening to other books. And learning on the job all by myself, wow. and cool. which has been great. I mean, I the challenge of it to me has just been fantastic. Hmm. The rewards. Yeah. Hey, what, since you've done so many, do you want to recommend us a couple um, that you would you think are some of your best work? Sure. Fiction or nonfiction doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever. Um, well, see, in the fiction category, I would. Um, I did a book that's just a beautiful book uh, called Rain Tree County, by John Lockhart Jr. It was it won the Great American Book Prize back in the late fifties and was made into a movie with Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth uh, Taylor. It's a beautiful book and its structure is it reminds me a lot of of uh, Infinite Jest. It has a really interesting technique where he'll end a chapter on one word and yet that word is the first word of the next chapter, and yet the word itself changes its own meaning between the two chapters. Oh, that's cool. It's a wonderful book, but it's a really interesting story. It takes place during the Civil War and afterwards in America. Uh, that's a beautiful book. Um, uh, a book by James Agee, which won the Pulitzer in 57, called Death in the Family. That one I'm very proud of. Hmm. Uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Oh, love uh, that book love that. and yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. The, it's nonfiction, but it's, uh, it's a great book. Yeah. Um, I'd recommend, it's funny, uh, I recommend Starship Troopers. <laughs> uh, we're, we're actually in the midst of discussing whether or not we wanted to do a re-record i narrated that book 20 years ago on tape hmm. wow and we get a lot of uh we've been getting a lot of reviews on audible saying how poor the audio quality was oh yeah we get those all the time so at this show here <laughs> yeah <laughs> you guys don't have an excuse but, the, but so we're, we're actually in discussions about whether or not we want to re-record it on you know which will be really fun for me to come back 20 i mean that was one of the very first books i ever did yeah um, huge but, sensation too. Yeah, it was it was great. It's it's a wonderful book. Um, and in nonfiction, oh golly day, uh, there's a great book I did called uh, Twenty Five Books That Shaped America" hmm. by Thomas oh. Foster. That's a good book. Um, the Jane Austen Education by William Dershowitz. That's a great nonfiction memoir. Very fun, very fun book. Hmm. Um, and then you get then you get into like real nerdy titles. I did a book called Captivology, which is about the science of attention grabbing, hmm. and it's a fascinating book. I bet that was helpful for your work too. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Huh. 
Um, I did a book called uh, Time Reborn by Lee Smolin. It's about a new way of con- a new conceptual idea of quantum mechanics. Oh, uh. you know, I tell people all the time. It's like you can look me up. You, you know, I narrate as Sean Pratt, but I also narrate as Lloyd James. I was Lloyd James before I was Sean Pratt. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, it's a long story. It's a long, long story. It's not worth going into. But so you can find me on both of those genres. And I guess the actually the, the way to also look at it is what I love about Audible is you can you can filter my books by best selling or customer rating, hmm. and they'll t- that, that that's basically I've looked at both of those filters. And they tend to show up the books that I would also say, yeah, that's a great book. I really, that was a good book of mine. Hmm. Um, but, you know, nowadays for the last, gosh, almost 10 years, if I do 50 books a year, 45 are nonfiction now. Oh, that's a lot. I hardly do any. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I did a really good murder mystery thriller last year called The Scribe, which was a lot of fun to do. It was about a serial killer in Atlanta, Georgia in 1885. That was a fun hmm. fiction piece to do. A lot of fun character voices. And um, I'm doing a new series where uh, Abraham Lincoln in the 30s for a while was lived in Springfield, Illinois with Joshua Speed. And that's true. They were, he was a young lawyer and Speed owned a dry goods store. And they they lived together and worked together for about four years. And this author has recast that time period that they're crime fighters like, like Holmes and Watson. Hmm. And it's really fun. It's a great. It's, so I had to come up with that Daniel Day Lewis, Abraham Lincoln voice <laughs> that's now become correct. You know, <laughs> that that high reedy voice. Yeah. But uh, you know, but the, the ones I just met. Oh, Ben Hur was also a great book I did. Oh, right? cool. Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace yeah. yeah. Huh. That was way back in the day too. That was a very early recording. That's cool. I'd love to have another shot at that. That's yeah. another thing too. I, I know when the book is really good. When I go, damn, I wish I could have another shot. Wow. <laughs> and I do, I feel that way about Infinite Jest at times. Yeah, I do. You know, I'll, I'll hear a section, I'm like, because sometimes I'll be listening to it, I'm like, come on, Sean, tempo, tempo, tempo. Mm-hmm. I'm always on my students about tempo, and I tell them, I said, there's a reason why on the Audible app on your phone, there's that little speedometer thing. Right. Most people on, most people on Audible listen to books at 1.5 to 2 times speed. Mm. Because most narration is too slow for them. Hmm. And people are like, well, if I go too fast, they can't understand me. I'm like, no, they can't understand you because your diction's not good enough. Hmm. There's, always, there's always a challenge with, it's like a, it's like a scales. On one hand, you have speed, and the other side, you have nuance and precision. Nuance meaning your performance, and speed meaning the actual tempo. And you always sacrifice one or the other. But over time as a narrator, you learn you can increase both but ultimately, if you go too fast, you begin to sacrifice speed and nuance. Hmm. And if you focus on speed and nuance, you sacrifice speed. And you've got to find there are times when the tempo of a piece takes over and times when the nuance takes over. And you have to know the difference. You know, when you're doing the Ken Ardetti thing as he gets faster and faster, <laughs> you're, you're, you're sacrificing nuance for the sake of the speed of his internal dialogue, which is what that speed reflects. Right. You know, huh. Um. And it works. You know, I ought to offer, I don't know if you guys want to do this. I actually have a recording, not from the book itself, but I use for my students of that sequence. Oh, yeah. And I can I can give it to you if you guys want to publish oh, it as a side thing. thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll send it I'll send it along. You, you can hear uh, it, you can hear the how slowly it starts and how fast it comes at the end. And so that then you'll understand what I'm talking about, about looking at the text and going 
oh, this bug thing is 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 a chance for the listener to slow down hmm. or the reader to slow down. And then we pick it back up. So I'll put it in the when I send you guys this recording. Yeah, we'll I'll post it on our website. Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect example of of tempo control. How long is that, Sean? Uh, you know, it's funny. I I want to say it's about eighteen minutes long. Okay. When I do that assignment for my students, they're, they they can only, they can they have to hit my time. Oh. I force them to go because <laughs> a lot of my students narrate too slowly, and I'm like, okay, it's a later it's it's later in the curriculum. I don't make them do it initially because they can't handle it. Yeah. But huh. by the time they get to that piece, I'm like, okay, you have exactly between 1730 and 1830 to clock this one in on. <laughs> and they look at it. They're like, holy crap. Are you sure? <laughs> I'm like, quite yes. precise. Yeah. <laughs> it's very precise. Yeah. I'm like, that's, it forces them to, to get a head of steam going. And, but, but, the, but to me, what you're doing there is that's all for state. That's all for the effect of the read. Hmm. It's not willy nilly. It's in the text. If you look carefully yeah. and you think about what's going down. Just like the Randy, like when Randy Lentz is talking, you know, he's talking about, he's, he's, you know, he keeps, he's high on cocaine and he's talking to that guy who's walking Bruce with him. Bruce Green. Uh, gr- yeah, Green. Yeah. And he's talking about his kung fu moves and everything. <laughs> that whole scene, he's higher than a kite. And like I said, if you've ever been around somebody who's jacked up like that, they're talking a mile a minute. That scene, those scenes took so long to record because I knew what tempo they had to be recorded at. Right. It was a matter of being clear enough and fast enough at the same time. And it was very difficult, but mm. it was worth it. And I thought the, the end result I was very pleased with. Mm. But, but getting back to, there are other scenes I'm like, oh man, I wish I could go back and hit that one again. I could have, <laughs> I missed I missed that joke or I didn't quite phrase that correctly. And it was okay, but it could have been better. And <laughs> I, I'm very, very few books I'm like that yeah. with, but that's definitely one. So. Well, I got to say, Sean, I, I found myself uh, in the process of listening to your Read of Infinite Jest. Like I'm just driving in my car and I'm laughing out loud, like very consistently listening to you read this this book because I mean the book's funny in, in and of itself. Obviously, it's hilarious. That's one of the things right. that really hooked me about Wallace and his writing. But your delivery on certain lines just just cracked me up so much. Like for example, in that section on C, you know, and he says, and then we Ricky tick the fuck out of there. <laughs> the, like the way you said it with the with the character's voice that you said it in, I absolutely lost it, and I just think about that phrase over and over in my head all the time <laughs> in your voice. <laughs> so, so you you just yeah, you really nailed it. Well, so, <laughs> uh, and I just want to thank you in general also for uh, you know sharing your time with us today and really giving us kind of a workshop here and a little yeah, kind of mini class about narrating audio the science like of say, narration. It's something yeah. that we, you know, at least I know next to zero about. Yeah. So it's been extremely uh, informative for me to, to get this from you. And, you know, is there anything else that you, you've given us so much? Is there anything, is there any kind of final thought you want to leave us with here today? Um, yeah, I, I guess the, the thing I'd say is uh, I'm very grateful that, uh, that so many people enjoy the book. It, it's it's. Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure if I said this before, but I, this book has become like, for me, it's like the. There's a story about Patrick Stewart when he signed on to do Star Trek mm-hmm. back in the '90s, and that he he didn't. He just thought it's going to be another TV show. Right. He didn't realize mm-hmm. he was signing on to this iconic thing that was going to change his life. Yeah. And in a way, it's like that's what Infinite Jest has become for me. And <laughs> but I couldn't have picked a better book. Um. And and then I guess the last thing I would say, just for the for listeners of who are fans of audiobooks in general, is is you know, 
to, to take away from what I've just touched on, just in a brief sense, about the complexity of audiobooks, that it's a lot more, there's a lot more going into it that's required than people really understand. Yeah, that's you been know? made very evident in the last hour, for sure. And 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 maybe and maybe they'll be a little more forgiving <laughs> when they're listening to you know. Granted, some little, let's let's be honest. Not every performer is great at an audiobook, but sometimes when you're doing something that's really challenging, it it's it, it's just challenging, and you're trying to do the best job you can, yeah. and you're running up against people who have very firm ideas about the book. It's like yeah. you know when you take that friend who read the book and you go see the movie, and oh, the book was so much better. Well, yeah, of course it was the book. Yeah. Right. The book is condensed and complex, and it's your imagination. Mm-hmm. And now you're listening to somebody like me do voices, and you're like, well, I didn't think of Mario sounding like that right. or so on. It's yeah. like, well, it's a lot more goes into it than people realize. And and yeah. and to, to honor the text can sometimes really challenge the narrator. Mm-hmm. And you try your best to, to try to meet that challenge. And sometimes you get it, and sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's part of being a performer. <laughs> You know, yeah. but I'm very great. I'm, I'm really I'm really happy you guys invited me on. And I'm really grateful to your listeners and uh, for for listening and and yeah. and being such a fan of, of Wallace. I think he was a great writer. Yeah. And um, uh, and I'm you know, it was literally serendipity that got me this project. And I'm so grateful <laughs> for that. Well, we, we've cool. en- I've really enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, yeah. I could easily sit here and talk to you another hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have I have more questions, but I, I will let you. <laughs> We'll let you get to your and, wine and uh, do part. Well, maybe two. we'll do a part two. How about that? We'll see how this one sells. We'll see <laughs> how this one goes. We maybe do a part two sometime. Okay? We'll do the end notes to the show. Right? <laughs> that's right. Uh, oh. oh, that's good. I like that. But uh, what a thematic wrap there, Matt. <laughs> well, only if we can get that lady go bing yes. number twenty-seven forty-five. <laughs> there you go. Your um, identity online. People can find you as Sean Pratt Presents. Uh, do you want to give us your website and Twitter yep. handle and stuff like that? Sure. You can find me online at uh, SeanPrattPresents.com, on Facebook, Sean Pratt Presents, on Twitter, it's SP Presents, and uh, those are really the only three platforms you can find me on, cool. and then my contact information is there, and um, you can, like I said, you can find me on Audible as Sean Pratt, and Lloyd James is my other big name. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Sean. This has been absolutely just so entertaining and illuminating, and I've learned so much about your craft, and... And your appreciation for Wallace is, is awesome. So we're very thankful. Um, I want to give a special thank you to uh, a friend of Matt and I's, Ryan Marnane, who's, uh, who's a Wallace scholar out of uh, Rhode Island. And he, uh, he's, he does a lot of scholarly work on audiobooks. And he just gave a presentation at the Wallace conference last weekend about uh, the audiobook, the role of the audiobook in the archive of Wallace. And how do, how do scholars, how are we going to deal with this material? Um, and so he had a lot of really good questions that he submitted to us just to get us thinking about how to approach this interview and what kinds of things to ask. So big thanks to Ryan, our buddy, for that. And uh, Matt, where can people find our things online to get in touch with us? We are at Concavity Show on Twitter and on uh, Gmail. We, we have Gmail. You can e- Gmail. Uh, <laughs> send us an email. It's concavity show at gmail i think we're on instagram yep. yeah. Con- concavity, concavity show. show we need to get a facebook page yeah dude. do you want to do that i can i can yeah. i can rig that up sure yeah maybe we should get a facebook page we just got on um stitcher audio for some reason we were not on stitcher but we're on there now right yeah so 
we're on i think every other podcasting platform if you want to just search for great concavity you're probably already listening to this <laughs> yeah that would that would be about right i think <laughs> but yeah thanks again to ryan marnain yeah. and uh, as always to parquet courts and robin o'neill absolutely parquet courts is actually playing in uh, vancouver in a couple of weeks i'm gonna go try and see them and and uh hopefully they play instant disassembly Maybe I'll get the live recording from them and we can use that, that for the episode. Sweet. <laughs> that sweet. That's their theme song. Yeah, so that's right. Thanks to them. Well, Sean, thanks again so much. It was great talking to you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, I think it was. It was some, you know, only, yeah, fucking Germans. They they'll do crazy shit. I have a lot of friends. Listen, I have friends who are Germans. They're like, oh, yes, we shall do the entire World War One in an evening as an interpretive dance. My friend Dieter has written a score. We shall do it. It'll be lovely. And you're like, you're kidding me, right? No, we shall do it. It'll take five weeks, but we are ready.